Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. This week, I'm excited to share with you an interview that I did with uh, Tom Sherrington and Emma Turner from Mind the Gap. It's a new episode, and um, they are in the UK and thought maybe you'd like to hear more about them so you can get introduced to them as well. Uh, So feel free to check out this interview that I did with them. And you can hear more from their podcast at... uh, anchor.fm slash mindthegap-edu or on their YouTube channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. So feel free to check that out and there are links to that in the show notes. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this interview that I did uh, with them. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to Transformative Principle. Hi, I'm Tom Sherrington. And I'm Emma Turner. Welcome to our new show, Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe where we talk about closing gaps in global education through proven strategies and research-based practices. You'll hear our individual unique perspectives, as well as interviews with some of the most compelling authors and thinkers in the pre-K to 12 ecosystem. And now, enjoy today's show. Okay, welcome everybody. Welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap. We're really delighted to be talking to uh, Jethro Jones, who is a fantastic educator, podcaster, writer uh, and school leader from the US. Uh, he used to live in Alaska. So we're, I'm very excited about that because that feels like Mind the Gap, um, which is uh, trying to be global. Well, that's about the, fur- the furthest we've reached so far. So I'm, I'm really chuffed about that. Although now, uh, Jethro, that you actually live in Washington state, which is a, a, a short hop in your terms, I suppose, but still very exciting. So welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. For people who don't know who you are, I mean, I know you, a lot of people will know you in the US, but tell tell people who are listening in to the podcast or on the on YouTube uh, in the UK a little bit about about your background, so that people can sort of get a flavour of what you've been up to. Yeah, so I am a uh, former school principal. I was a school principal in uh, uh, kindergarten through twelfth grade systems, including a homeschool program and a prison school program for incarcerated youth, and. Um, as a kid, I moved around from place to place and was in five different elementary schools and uh, three different high schools. So I had a lot of different experiences in school. And through that time, I realized that I wanted to be an educator so that I could change education for the kids who nobody thought about, who people didn't care about, and who kind of got lost in the system. And so that's what I do now is I school leaders 
redesign their schools to make them meet the needs of every kid who's there, not just the the ones that school is designed for. Uh, do you know what? I, I was absolutely loving the fact that you were talking about children who potentially could slip through the net. Um, those children who um, might be presenting more challenges than, than other children. And I was reading your, your new book um, recently and I was absolutely blown away by the fact that you've kind of really focused on the student experience um, and what children's young people's perceptions are of the school experience. And I loved the line in it that was about um, children feeling invisible um, in education, which I've never read before, that kind of perspective of the, from the child. So my first question really is about if, if we feel like potentially children are a little bit invisible in our system, how do we make them visible in a more meaningful way, which I know you address beautifully in, in your book, but I would just love to hear it from you. Well, you know, there are a lot of different ways that kids can feel invisible. They can feel invisible because they're not in the majority in a school. They can feel invisible because they are in the majority in the school. And so what we need to do is really get to know our students well enough that every kid knows that we know who they are, that they don't feel invisible because, you know, a lot of principals stand outside the school in the morning and welcome kids to school. And if you call kids by their name, that shows that you know who they are. And if you uh, do something else to build a connection with them, that shows that you know who they are. So I'm going to share two quick stories about that. Number one was a custodian that I had who knew that there was no way he was ever going to remember everybody's name. And so he didn't even try. And so instead of trying to remember everybody's name and failing and getting it wrong, he intentionally got everybody's name wrong and he would call every single student Steve. And that was by design. And he'd say, hey, Steve, how are you? And he would quiz them on memorizing their lunch numbers so they could put their lunch number into the uh, the thing to get their lunch each day. And But he didn't know their names and he would just call every kid Steve. And what was amazing about that is that he called every kid Steve but they all felt like he knew who they were and he would do other things to build connections with them. And so his name was not Steve, but all the kids called him Steve as well. And so when there was an issue or something happened or he helped someone, I would ask questions and say, well, what, what went on here? And they would say, well, Steve told me to do this. And so I went and did that. And I would say, well, who's Steve? And they're like, you know, the guy with the numbers and the at lunch. And, and they knew that he knew who they were, even if he couldn't remember their name. So it's not all about getting their names right. But it's also about making sure that they feel like you know who they are. And that brings me to my second story. Had a wonderful student at my school who's a beautiful artist who just drew the most amazing things in the world. But this girl absolutely hated school. And I was pretty sure she hated me. I would try to talk to her. She would never open up to me. She would never say anything to me. And for two full years, I could not get anything out of her more than a hi, and then she would scurry off. Um, And I was sure that she hated school and hated everything we were doing. But I still tried my best to design something that would work for her. So we gave her an opportunity to do some animation and learn how to do animation because she was good at drawing. We figured she'd be able to take it to the next level and do animation. So we did that. 
And we gave her some really critical feedback as she was doing it and said, this is how you get better. And, um, and her stuff was amazing. So that was a good start, but we knew she could do better. And so we kept pushing her to do it. And she did a small presentation where she basically stood in front of a, me and a couple other teachers and talked about what she had done and, um, and said like five words in the whole thing. I don't know how she did it with so little talking because it was a, a presentation, but she managed to do it. And so as she did that, then um, I thought, okay, she still doesn't like me and doesn't want anything to do with me. And then um, I got a letter from her during uh, teacher appreciation week that a, a, a teacher had her students write a letter and she wrote me the most beautiful letter. And this girl who had never, um, had never given me the time of day finally was able to write me a letter that told me how she really felt, which was that this was the best educational experience she had ever had. And that it meant the world to her that we were doing something that was interesting to her and that we weren't just leaving her in the dust. Oh, that's amazing. I, I, I tell you what, I wish I'd heard the Steve story a long time ago because I was to really struggle <laughs> with the whole names thing. And that is just the most genius idea. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. But it, it is interesting, isn't that sense of belonging? And um, I definitely think it's true if somebody, like if you know like a whole bunch of kids' names, but not those kids' names, they really hate it. And um, that is just, I, I, I want to go back in time and call everybody something the same. But it, it's the same about the curriculum. But how far do you think that goes though? So, Within that context with that student, she was a, a, a kind of exceptional kid, like a with, with special needs. So you wouldn't be able to do that kind of tailoring for everyone, would you? I mean, is that what you, or, or do you think it's because you need to respond to the a particular student's kind of issues at that time? Yeah, that's that's a great point. I really do believe that you can respond to every single student, and you can't respond to every single student by teaching an individualized lesson to them. That's where I think this term of personalized learning goes awry, is that we try to think that if we're doing something like personalized learning, what we need to do is the teacher needs to plan basically 36 different lessons for the kids in her class. That's just not going to work, period, end of story. And so what we need to do is give kids more autonomy in their own learning so that they have a voice in what they're doing. So this girl who was doing the animation, um, she was one little piece of what everybody else in our school was doing, which was um, everybody was choosing a project that they wanted to work on during a specific period of time and they could either do it in groups or they could do it in uh, individually. We tried to encourage them to do groups so that they could collaborate. This girl with the animation, there was no way we were going to get her to work with anybody else. So we recognized that and just let it go. But other students did, did different things during that time. And one group of students, I actually tracked them throughout the year and found that they passed off 32 standards from, uh, from our, uh, list of standards that they could do, um, many of which were above their grade level. And some things that are like employability skills, they learned how to do without any instruction about it because they needed them for that moment. So they learned how to write, they learned how to research, they learned how to create, they learned how to implement protocols to protect students and make sure they didn't get injured. And then they also learned how to hire kids and fire kids because they didn't work out. And so they learned things that we had never anticipated them learning, but it's because we carved out time in the day for them to work on something specific that they were interested in, that they cared about, and they still had all their other classes that they needed to attend. But what we saw across the board 
was kids who could get engaged in that that project that they were working on their uh their performance in their other classes got better because they wanted to make sure they had time to do that other thing that they were interested in i'm i'm absolutely fascinated in your book by the idea of sort of tracking the children and developing that sense of empathy and i, I love that bit towards the beginning where you're talking about really understanding what the student experience is like and and some of the ways in in which you do that um and it was it was so interesting to think about the kind of initial thought you might have to solve a problem and then having to the process that you would go through i'm articulating this really badly so i'm going to ask you to explain that process about finding a problem and then working it through is it like prototyping you're talking about prototyping is that the same prototyping and iterating yeah so, so this is the design thinking process, which I take a little bit different approach um, on in my book, but it, it really is the the same kind of thing um, all the world over. And so you start out by gaining empathy for a student. And one of the ways that you do that is you just try to experience what that student is experiencing. And especially now during coronavirus, when some kids are at home, some kids are coming into school here in the States, it's, it's all over the map. Some schools are hundred percent there. The schools in my district where I currently live are hundred percent online, except for the kids with special needs who are able to go in. Um, and so it, thinking about what that experience is like for those students um, and trying to understand what it is that they're going through. So you gain empathy. Once you do that, you may think you had that problem solved, but or that problem identified. But after you gain some empathy, you may realize that there's a different problem going on that you weren't sure of before. And so that you then redefine the problem. And once you redefine what that problem is, so, you know, for example, it could be that kids are taking a long time to get lunch and not everybody's getting lunch because it's, it's going too slow. And so you may think the problem is that kids are sitting down and not going into line to get lunch when what they really need to do is they just need to get in line and get lunch and it'll be fine. That's, that's the example I give in the book. And that's what, what we thought was the problem. What we learned very quickly was that the line was too slow and nobody wanted to stick around and stand in the line. And so we thought, well, we just need to, you know, force kids to do that and that'll be fine. So that's what we did. Well, that didn't work because the kids didn't want to do it. They didn't want to stand in line for 10 minutes and miss their lunch. And so our prototype of forcing them to stand in line just didn't work. And so we needed to do something else. So then we reflected on that and thought, well, what's causing the problem? And we had to gain empathy again and see what they were experiencing and saw that the bottleneck was the lady who was taking their student numbers. And if we could find a way to solve that, they could get through faster. So that's what we did. We iterated on our original problem. We still make kids line up first, but then we added another station for them to enter their numbers so kids could go through much faster. And that design thinking process, you can apply to any problem that we face in education. And when you empower your teachers to do that as well, then they can start solving problems on their own without it having to be an initiative or a new school policy or anything like that. They can just see a problem and start solving it. And what becomes really powerful is when you allow students to start doing that as well. The problems they see become possible to solve with them instead of you having to tell students how to do everything every day. You're listening to Mind the Gap presented by John Cat Educational. 
Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. I think I, I find it really interesting. In fact, so you've got this idea of... Um, of design uh, as a leadership paradigm and actually I'm, I'm really interested in that because it echoes something which um i've written about myself actually in the past about teachers being sort of curriculum designers um and design has a kind of um special kind of sense doesn't it where it has this sort of deliberate intentional creativity where you you test things out and then you ad- adapt and it's not sort of like wild creativity but it's also not sort of super managerial um, so in this sort of paradigm, what, what, do you, what is for you the key difference between a leader and a designer? Yeah, I, I think there are three different roles that principals can take um, uh, or heads of school, school leaders, however you want to call it, where you can be a manager, which means I, you know, I make sure that the school doesn't burn down and that every kid gets home safely. And that's, you know, that's a manager. You, you just run around putting out fires all the time. I think that a leader is someone who has a vision and tries to help people see that vision and get to that point where they are fulfilling that vision. And I think that the designer takes it one step further where they change the school and redesign it in a way to make it better for the kids that are in front of them, for the teachers that are in front of them and for themselves by intentional design, by saying, we're going to do what's right because it's the right thing to do. And it's going to be better for everybody, not just more convenient for us as teachers, not just more convenient for us, for me as the principal, or not just more convenient for the kids who are already doing well, but really trying to find a way to make it better for everyone and not just a specific group of people. So for you, it's like, um, I wasn't sure whether you were in, when you were, whether you were saying like sometimes you leave and sometimes you like get into a design stage. Are you, are you sort of saying that, design is almost like embodies the managerial and the leader and it's kind of like it's it's going it's a whole other level yeah that that's absolutely it because it's about more than just uh, just managing or just leading it's about uh, adapting and changing and you can't say okay today i'm gonna redesign how our school works it needs to be a philosophy that goes through everything that you do and it, it, it starts with the reason I think most of us got into education, which is because we want to make an impact on kids and we wanted to help them become amazing adults. And so if you start there, which most educators do, um, then you can pretty quickly get to a point where you can see where you're not doing that and start making adjustment, adjustments to be able to do that more often and in a better way through that design thinking process. I really like the the chapter that kind of links to this about your defining your mission and your vision. And you've got those sections where people have got these enormously long convoluted intentions and grand, grandiose plans. So can you just explain that chapter, kind of praise you that chapter, because I was giggling along as I was kind of listening, reading it on the exercise by thinking, oh, I have read so many of those. I really have. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I always have to look up what mission statements are for schools and districts because I can never memorize them. And that has always been a problem for me. And so here is um, one from 
uh, Fairbanks North Starboro School District, where I just was, says our mission is to provide an excellent, equitable education and a safe, supportive environment so all students will succeed and contribute to a diverse and changing society. And that's all well and good, but what does that actually mean? What, when it comes down to it, what does that really mean? So another one from another district in Alaska where I worked was, uh, in close cooperation with our diverse island community, we exist to provide an educational program of the highest standard that empowers all students to achieve personal and academic excellence while developing their full potential as responsible, productive citizens. And that just becomes a mouthful. And so how do you decide what you're going to do and make it align with that? So I developed something different for myself. So for my personal vision, whenever I'm in a school, uh, leading a school, working with teachers, is to give learners what they need when they need it. And so that could look different, but it's really easy to make a determination about what you should do. Does someone need it? If yes, then you should give it. Does someone not need it? Nope, they don't. Then you shouldn't give it. And so that goes down to everything uh, even as small as whether or not a teacher should give a student the right answer on a test or on a question, or should she solve the problem for them. In some situations, as a teacher, you do need to give that right answer to the kids so they can just move on with their life. In other situations, it is not helpful at all. You need to allow them to struggle. But if you know the people you're working with well enough then you can make that determination in the moment and be able to give what people need at the same time. There are a couple more that I want to share. Number one is engaged in learning, prepared for life. That is another great one that is short and sweet and to the point, but it also communicates what matters, that we engage students in learning to ensure that they are prepared for life. Another one is a community that works, learns, and succeeds together. Those vision statements are much more powerful than this long drawn out thing that tries to incorporate every single thing out there, it really focuses you and forces you to think about what really matters. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Do you think those things, I mean, I'm always interested in those sorts of statements that, you know, if I'm I mean, I, I, you know, I was a teacher for, for decades and when I was in the classroom trying to teach maths or physics, um, 
those statements were probably somewhere, but I probably couldn't tell you what they were um, necessarily because they're kind of they're, they're kind of grand, aren't they? Um, and in the moment, you're thinking, how do I explain this idea to James, who's struggling over here? And so you sort of have to. But of course, if I had sat down and thought about it, it would be part of the philosophy and the ethos. So how do you, how do you translate that kind of stuff and get it off the page, kind of into the classroom and make it kind of a lived feature uh, without it just being a kind of a kind of you know a, a leader's thing, but not a kind of kids and students. Isn't it thing. what Mary says about live not laminated? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you what do you think about that, Jethro? Well, I think that if it for people to internalize it, it needs to be memorable and short enough for them to be able to do that. You know, if you, um, if you recite um, your mission or vision every single day and it's long and drawn out, eventually it becomes just words that don't really have any meaning. And, um, and that is exactly what one of my school boards did. They would recite that at the beginning of each meeting and then they, after they would recite it, they would go, get to business of doing the exact opposite of what it said in their mission. And it, the, the cognitive dissonance never affected them because they didn't pay attention to what it was actually saying. So that's, that's, that's what happens. So what you need to be able to do is have it be memorable enough and, um, and meaningful enough that people will actually respond. And I believe that every single school can come up with their own vision statement that is precisely that. I'm desperate to ask you about the one I came up with when I was in headship now. <laughs> yeah, let's run it through, see how it is. It, we Ours was that we came up with, and it came to me whilst I was pushing the pram on maternity leave. I was, I mean, We'd been wrangling with it for ages. And we came up with um, developing responsibility, caring about achievement. So it was the whole developing the responsibility of the learner and responsibility of the children to the world and to their communities. And then the caring about achievement was, yes, we genuinely care about your academic grades, but we also care about you. And we, we care about your community and we care about supporting you. So the whole developing responsibility, caring about achievement was our statement. And I'm just thinking it's nice and short. Tick from Jethro. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's short. But it also provides information on how to make decisions. So if you have a situation where you're, you have to weigh whether or not you're developing responsibility in a student, you know the right way to go because you know that it's about, about them developing responsibility. So you can make a decision in that moment. And the reason why I bring up these very specific individual responses uh, to your questions is because we need to think about the individual. That part doesn't scale well if you have a vision statement like that, you know, make sure that every single person is named in some way in in that mission statement. Because when you when you when it means something, when it means everything to everyone, then it really means nothing. It's just like grades. When grades can mean everything to every different class that they're in, then they really mean nothing and there's no point to having them. So when you can use your vision to help you make decisions, then you're going, that vision is going to help you develop responsibility in kids and it's going to remind them that they need to achieve. And, and as teachers and students and everybody makes these decisions, they're going to reflect on that vision and see how it ties in with that. One of the things I, I wanted to ask you about, because it, it, it's funny how things um, 
you know stick out like so, I, I mean i don't think even so far in this in this talk we've actually been done the obvious thing of saying that your the book that we're referring to is called school x um and is that has that all that's just coming out is it has it already been released is it available to everybody Yes, that's been released. You can get the free chapter at schoolx.me, schoolx.me to get the free chapter of that. And and really it is about combining the school ex, the school experience with the field of user design or user interaction which uh, designers use to make our iPhones and Android phones something that we want to be on all the time. And so it's taking that same approach. How do we design it so that we want that people want to be in our schools and be engaged in them. Okay. So it's, um, it's good. I mean, it's, it's, it's super practical. I, lo- I love the whole frame of, you know, leaders, teachers, students, and then you've got this community parents uh, thing at the end. So it's, uh, it's nicely structured, but there's, you tell this sort of story at the beginning about a principal t- t- talking about, it's kind of got a geographical aspect and you're talking, looking at some water and a, a body of water. And then over there, um, there's a, a kind of calm water and you're kind of aiming for that now the reason I, that struck me was because one of the things that i read about when i was doing an ma in school leadership a master's degree which i never finished actually but anyway, i learned a lot was um was this idea it's by a guy called Vale who talks about um permanent white water and, I, and I, that, I was thinking that's interesting so for me i've always used that analogy that schools are really there there is no calm like you never get to that bit it's always a distant dream because it's, you're always in the rapids. It's like it's never ending. And you have to learn to live with permanent change rather than thinking, we'll get through this change and then there'll be the calm bit over there. So, I mean, does that resonate with you? What, what do you think? And is, is it a sort of pipe dream to reach the calm waters? Yeah, so the, the, calm, mar- the calm waters in my mind is the, the vision that you're trying to achieve which you can recognize that you're probably not going to ever get there in education because like you said, change is constant and things are always going to be different. You're going to have different kids in your school and different teachers and people are going to turn over and that kind of stuff. So the vision of, you know, what is needed when it's needed or developing responsibility and caring about achievement. Did I get that right, Emma? Okay, good. All right. So (laughs) see, see, that's how good that is, Emma, because I I could recite it after just listening to it once. (laughs) Boom is right. So, so that vision is that calm water at the end. And, um, and if you can have your focus on that vision of where you want to be and what you want it to look like, you can recognize that it's still going to be rough water getting there. And it's probably going to be rough water for a long time. But once you achieve your vision, the rough water actually feels more calm because you're doing the right kinds of things. And that's what's so empowering about it is that you don't have to have everything done perfectly or everything figured out just how it should be. You can recognize that it is a process and that you're continually going through it. And that when a new team member comes on, then you're going to be back at a starting point with them but that doesn't mean that you're at a starting point with everybody else when new students come into the building. So I was principal of a middle school. And what was so great about this was the middle school was just seventh and eighth grade. So every year, at least half of our students were brand new. So when people said, well, this is how we do things here. It's like, nobody knows that because half the students have no idea what it looks like. So for us to be afraid of changing something, we're getting 
at least 50% of our student body is brand new every single year. So to think that it's not going to change because of the people that we have is just crazy. So it was really easy to make change because half the kids had no idea what happened the previous year. And, and because we were in a military uh, associated with a military base, we usually had like 60% of our students that were new, if not 70% because the military kids would change out. And so we had huge turnover and we use that to our advantage instead of being afraid of what that turnover looked like. Interesting. Really interesting. I like the bit you talk about, but ask one question, like, ask what was it what what do you want someone to know about your school and I I went on a leadership course once and there was a guy who said um everybody's got a picture of their class or a picture of their school with every student in it what would make your picture different and special if you if you could only sort of show one picture what what would that be what would yours look like how would it be different from the one down the road um but just I wanted to articulate a little bit more about that ask one question thing because it kind of ties in with the rapid water, still water, vision, statement, mission bit. So in every interaction, you have an opportunity to define what your school is like. You have an opportunity to help someone see differently about what you are creating in your school. So if you ask that question of what do you want people to think about your school. If, if you have a clear vision, then it's probably going to be something that's tied into that. What I wanted people to think about my school is that we gave kids what they needed when they need it. So from trauma to academic support to emotional support and everything in between, we wanted to give kids what they need when they need it. And so we tried hard to make sure that people who interacted with our school saw that we were adapting to meet the needs of our kids and the people who were in the school. And, and so really getting clear on what you want people to experience as part of your school really helps you define how you're going to interact with people as you have that opportunity. So from newsletters to assemblies to um, fundraising and everything in between, you're going to say, this is what we want people to know about our school. So if you are, for example, in one of my schools, we did a fundraiser every year about, uh, or not fundraiser, but a canned food drive where we'd bring in food and then we'd share that with um, the food banks and, and community members that needed support during the holidays. Now, the the school was not really all about that, but they really wanted to be about that in the months of November and December. And so they would do these huge um, assemblies to get everybody all excited about it, to prepare them. And then they'd have these really great, um, you know, uh, assemblies at the end to reward everybody who did it. And what that turned into was that teachers were encouraging students to bring cans into their specific classroom um, so that they, they would get more cans and that group would win. And, um, and they would offer extra credit for bringing cans in for the canned food drive. So what that quickly meant was that your grade in the first semester now depended on how many cans you brought in for the canned food drive. And so our mission statement or our vision that we were trying to do was that we were really rigorous and wanting kids to learn effectively, but our behavior was opposite of that. Our behavior was if you bring in canned foods, then you can get a better grade in the class. And the, the staff couldn't, um, couldn't handle that, uh, that uh, cognitive dissonance that was happening with that, that 
They, they didn't see that as a problem. They didn't see that as contradictory. And to me, it just didn't make any sense. If we were really about high academic standards, how could we justify giving these grades? So people had an interaction with the school and they learned what we were really about. And they learned that we were more interested in getting our name in the paper and talking about raising all the, or bringing all these canned food um, than we were about having high academic standards. And, you know, no judgment on my part. That's just the reality of what it turned out to be. But as you're doing things, if you have a clear vision of where you want to be and you can ask people what they, what you want them to walk away from your school with, that's where the real power comes in, where you can say, this is how we should define who we are and our actions and our behaviors reflect what we believe. That's, I think that's so interesting because I've come across that myself like, and I've, I've struggled it when I was a school leader, sort of, you've got this sort of a, this ideal, like you, you want your school to be something, but in truth, it can be something else. And um, sometimes those sort of, I mean, I don't, you know, I think they're important, obviously. I mean, the canned food drive thing sounds important, but as you were describing that, I was thinking, what are you going to say about this? Because I was kind of, it's true. I mean, it, giving grades for that just seems weird to me, but um, it's, but it's not an unimportant, is it? It is come an identifier, especially in a middle school. I mean, when else do you get the chance to do that? You know, it's a great time to do those things. So how, right, did, and, you that? how did you resolve that in the end? Well, I didn't. Um, I, I left and went to a different school, not because that school wasn't good, but because I, was, I wanted to, pr- to further my career. But I think yeah. you bring up a really good point. It's an important thing for middle school students to think about other people. And, and that really does matter. And so how do we get middle school kids to think about other people? That's one way we do a canned food drive. And that is one option for that. That wasn't the main driver of what we wanted our school to be however, but it turned into a main driver each year. And so that's, that's where you really got to think about the things we do at our school. What do they make people believe about us? What do they signify that we value? And, and you really have to reconcile that um, yourself in each school. And your school is going to be different than my school then, and different than the school down the street that is in the same, same community, but they have a different approach to things. Obviously, right. developing responsibility to your community. Right. <laughs> Before, you know, it's interesting. I, it, it's, I think it's interesting. That it's like it's almost like the very end of the book. It's almost like it, it, it's an interesting note to end on for me because you, you talk about this thing about resilience and grit and how, the, in reality, actually, some kids school's pretty tough and you don't really need to fake it. You know, you don't need to sort of like engineer grit activities because it's just. Schools just has that feeling anyway, and um, and I think there's and I think that's really important is that like that authenticity of making school demanding, uh, or making it f- so that you do have to kind of grit, you know develop the grit to sort of get through, and that's not necessarily a negative thing. But I, I thought that was an interesting end note really that uh, you don't have to sort of des- you don't have to design every element sort of in a sort of artificial way. It can just be embedded in the experience. Was that on purpose to end like that? Yeah, because, you know, we we have to be aware of the community that our kids live in and what they're experiencing outside of our school and recognizing that, that learning doesn't only happen within the four walls of our school. Learning happens everywhere. And not only do we need to recognize that, we also need to honor that and, and trust that those learning experiences are contributing to what our students are becoming. And so I, I worked in a school where 
Uh, it was in, in the United States, a Title I school, which means that there's high poverty in that area, and we needed um, to provide a ton of support to our students. And we had a student come in um, one day who uh, was super amped up and really frustrated and was just causing all kinds of problems. And because we had worked so much with this young man, I was able to thankfully figure out what was really causing him issues. And he had his brother who was involved in a shootout with the police the night before and had ditched his gun in a, under a car close to the school. And this student knew that his 15 year old brother had been engaged in this last night and didn't know where his brother was and was concerned about his safety. He didn't know if he got picked up by the police or if he was in hiding or what was going on. But this kid was learning different things outside of school, just like all of our students do. That's an extreme example, but all of our kids have experiences outside of school. And so this young man needed to process and deal with that in an appropriate way for him. And we needed to give him the time and space to do that. He's not going to come in after that experience and sit down and get to work on, you know, learning about the, the history of, of the state 200 years ago. That's just not going to, that's not going to, that's not going to mean anything to him. And so we, at the same time, he needs to learn how to uh, live his life in a way that he's not going to end up in that same place. And so education is definitely a pathway out of that where he, he doesn't have to rely on, on the gang violence to, to find meaning in his life. And, and that's, those are just things where we have to adapt and adjust to the people that are there. We have to recognize the, the community experience that they're having, what it's like in the community, how they can um, bring some of that learning into the school and how that can benefit them or how that can possibly make things more challenging. But we have to be responsive to that and even proactive in saying, hey, I get it. So us working for months before this incident happened to provide him with support so that when the time came, he could actually have an adult he could talk to about what was going on was huge. If we would have treated him like every other kid who has trouble in school and we suspend him and we get him in trouble all the time, we don't ever try to understand who he is, then we weren't going to have success with him when that time came. But because we did, we could actually work with him. That's brilliant. Well, I mean, I, it's it, it's great talking to you. I, what I what I love about your your answers is that they're really detailed. I, it just it just really kind of like appeals to my nerdy side. Like you give this sort of it's really like focused. There's no there's no waffle. It's like you yeah. And I, I love that because it's totally grounded in proper school life. You know, really specific things. And I, I think that's really interesting. I I, I think we need, we're going to run out of time in a minute. I, I'm going to ask you a little about your podcast because one question. One question. Yeah, go on then. Go for it, Emma. What is Go Cricket? I was reading the book and I was like, this is a hashtag I know nothing about and I need to know more about it. Yeah. So Go Crickets is my friend Joe Sanfilippo, who's the superintendent of Fall Creek School District in Wisconsin. And he has done an amazing job of branding his school district. And the hashtag Go Crickets is what he uses um, to talk about the things that are going on in a school and it, it's in a school district. And it's really powerful because, you know, he's just in some podunk town in Wisconsin. And yet uh, that 
that hashtag, the shirts, I'm not wearing one today, but I have a go cricket shirt that, you know, he gives out whenever he goes out somewhere because he wants to build the brand of his school. And, um, and it's really amazing to see what he's done with that. I love that. (laughs) Last thing though, because, you know, we're kind of like, um, you know, partners in crime here trying to, trying to sort of share educational ideas and, and thinking with, with people who listen in and, I, I picked up someone on someone on Twitter today saying they discovered our podcast and he really enjoyed it. So it's always it's always great, isn't it, when you get really yeah. who, who does your podcast reach? Who are you kind of broadcasting to? Uh, so the podcast is called Transformative Principle, and it is designed to help school leaders learn how to be transformative principals. And so I've got um, uh, over 350 episodes on there already been doing it for seven years and um, it's just amazing. So the, the reach now, because I've been doing it so long really is worldwide and I get downloads from, from all over the place. And I'm not saying that to brag, but you know, if you just stick with something, (laughs) then, then you, you start to get results. Um, And it's only taken seven years to, to finally get into Indonesia. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 350 episodes. Oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> we're, we're going to be ancient. Like, that's like, oh my, we, this is our 11th one. You know that we're, we're on number 11. So um, we, we, I feel like we're the, the, the beginning of the, the mountain and you're like right at the top. Yeah. Well, uh, I certainly don't feel like I'm at the top, but I, I have been doing it a long time and it's become a lot easier. But um, at the end of each episode, I ask what's one thing that a principal can do this week and I've found people who, who have been instrumental in helping me become the kind of principal that, that I have become today. And, and I really credit that to finding people who could solve the problems that I was facing so that it wasn't just me trying to do it all myself. And so over those 350 episodes, I feel like I've been learning in dog years that um, because I've had the opportunity to talk to so many different people, I've been able to learn so much faster because they have the expertise to know what to do and could help me when I was stuck on different things. So if you're a principal and you're listening and you want to learn how to be a transformative principal, I mean that go through those and every week do the thing that they suggest and you're going to see some amazing results. And that shines through in your book as well, because I don't think I've read as many books where there are so many examples from such a broad range of educators, so many examples of, theory actually rooted in everyday practice it's so powerful mm-hmm. when you read it it's, it's so rich it's like oh, it's brilliant so i got the best i got the best sorry i got the best compliment a couple of weeks ago from a principal he said i just finished reading your book and i it felt like someone had gotten into my mind and i found myself nodding all throughout the book and what i really try to do emma because i think it's important is really make sure that what I'm offering is practical, actionable advice and not just theory. Theory is all well and good. And I love to talk theory and, and philosophize and all that kind of stuff. But, but when it comes down to doing the actual work in a school, you need action that you can take. And that's really what I try to do in the podcast and in the book as well. Oh, it's definitely, especially when you're actually saying to people, guiding them, right, now reflect on it. Now write it down. Right. <laughs> Commit to this. <laughs> Take some action. Yep. I absolutely adore it. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, and a little teaser for people. People need to go read the book so they can find out what batching and mega batching. I've written that down too. I was like, yeah. it sounds like some amazing rap. It's, like, it's, so, it's so useful <laughs> to have an idea. 
Well, look, I'm going to start. Yeah. I'm going to wind up because um, you know I, I feel like we could talk forever now. But thank you so much. We're actually for people who don't know, we are recording this on the eve of the of the U.S. presidential election. So it's like we're all like waiting. It's an amazing. Time. <laughs> still so, smiling at this point, Tom. Still smiling. <laughs> thank you so much for giving us your time, Jethro. It's really amazing to talk to you, and I'm looking forward to coming onto your own podcast and uh, and doing that because Emma's already had that privilege. I'm looking forward to yeah. that. So. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, this is Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and with Emma Turner. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com transformativeprincipal transformative principal.